And the first 30 seconds is just unbelievable. The crowd starts whinnying and neighing and everything else. It just sounds from a crowd you've never heard in your life. And the sound of the automobiles, of course, is like that unmistakable sound you hear in, in town when there's a crash. You, you, you always know it's, it's two automobiles hitting. It's something it doesn't. there's no other sound like it. Well, this you just magnify that by, uh, well, 20, say, and you've got this, you've got the sound of the sport. And it is the fact that, it really seems to be based upon the psychological fact that when you're driving over and over again, you do have an impulse to ram into the person who offends you, either the guy who is pulled up too short in front of the light or who is cut in front of you in a lane of traffic or isn't going fast enough or some way has frustrated you in traffic. You want to hit him. In your, in your very vivid uh, reportage, Tom, and, and uh, this one too, it's, it's a little frightening, of course, this crash to see it. At the same time, it is, and these, these are jammed, of course. There are thousands, always jammed, aren't they? The yeah, they, they run very cannily, actually. They, they'll have two a year any given area. Well, in, in, in yours, do you ever ask, I'm sure you do, why this is, what it is they seek, they themselves, you know? I do, yeah. but I've found that it's no good to ask people this. People, when confronted with something very close to them, such as either something involving status or some kind of self-expression that they know other people are going to look down on, will jump for mental cliches. Yeah, and yeah, you right. will just get some kind of you'll get some kind of mental bills usually. It's the same thing when kids are arrested after these these uh, mass binges or the uh, the, the riots. Yeah. They're always being asked why they did it. Well, they jump for the last mental cliche of that course. they'll right, say. Of course. They'll I, know say that, I know this is so. Yeah, my parents. Yeah. Um, my parents were too strict. Uh, my parents weren't strict enough. But the reason is something else, and this is the, the digging part. You know, it may be connected, possibly, with this another sequence you have on the last American hero, Junior Johnson, this great stock car racer who was in, he's a, while he's a winner, this is where North Carolina. Right. Where, I must say you're from, where your namesake is from. <laughs> well, I'm just a little north of there. But you're from Virginia. Right. By the way, has the, I'm sure you've been told this often, haven't you, the, the, the exuberance of your style and that of Thomas Wolfe, the Asheville Wolfe, and the novel. Uh, you've been told this often, haven't you? This, well, I, some people have mentioned this. You don't, you don't like this? No, I'm glad to hear it because for so, so many years, people would come up to me and say, oh, you're Tom Wolfe, and they'd say sarcastically, well, I've always enjoyed your novels. You know, I've had 34 years to think of a comeback to this, and I, I, never, uh, I never could come up with one, so it's much better to me to have yeah. somebody say, well, gee, you remind me of him, yeah. at least... <laughs> That improves it a little and bit. And I'm thinking about that style. Uh, Remember earlier you spoke about the need to find something new? He, in yeah. his own way, in the 30s, when he wrote, remember when, when The Coleman Angel came out? What was that? Uh, it was uh, 20, 30, 31, around there. 30, yeah. It was uh, immediately something revolutionary, because it yeah. quite, and it caught, it obviously caught the young, because something there. Well, he had. And you, in a sense, do it. Well, way. he had something that I do admire, I, and that is momentum. Tremendous drive and what he wrote. In many ways, he's a 19th century writer. He used a lot of 19th century rhetoric, and his ideas are not going to knock anybody on their head. But that, momentum. but that momentum is something that very few writers sense have equaled. I'm thinking of describing, uh, no, there's a thought of you, your, your style wholly different, but one or two times when he 
wrote about the train ride on uh, Time on the River. Yeah. Uh, the train, Casey Jones, ooh, and whistles, <laughs> zowie, and he, he was doing the train, you know. As now, you that is a, that's, a, that's, uh, that's a, an all-time great uh, passage. He did capture the whole train thing, which was a very big thing in this country. You know, no movie about a train, no train adventure movie, has ever been a financial failure in this country. There's still something about that train. Well, as you say, this is a lead, and I think to this, for me, this is a lead into this sequence on the last American hero, Junior Johnson, who was ran uh, moonshine running and fought the revenueers for his father, and is now, strangely enough, is worshipped by the people, but is a, a very solid, respectable businessman. Would you mind telling us about Junior Johnson and stock car racing in Carolina? Well, I'll tell you how that story came about. It's the easiest way to explain it. The, there was a... One of the editors at Esquire had heard of Junior Johnson, the stock car driver, and had known that he had been had run moonshine whiskey for his father down in North Carolina. And the idea at the outset was to really just to write about a stock car driver or stock car champion who had been who had run moonshine whiskey. It just seemed to have a it was kind of a local color kind of thing. Then when I got down there, I found another, more evidence of this kind of revolution that I keep saying is taking place in this country, and that is, here was this sport, stock car driving, which was, grew up among people we used to refer to as the lower classes. It grew up among farm workers and sort of the urban proletariat in the South. and was always looked down upon by any respectable person. And even today, this holds true to a certain extent. Stock car racing was a rowdy sport. Well, gradually, this thing became a big money sport. And Detroit, again, discovered things a little quicker than our Eastern thinkers, who should be on top of such things, did. Because they could see it turn up in just sales figures. They saw this funny thing happening in the South. There were cars selling in the South for some inexplicable reason that, uh, in big numbers, such as the Hudson and certain Pontiacs and Lincolns, big cars that shouldn't be selling in these poor areas uh, the way they were. And it, the reason they were selling was that these stock car drivers were winning races in them, especially those old Hudsons. And every kid in the South wanted a Hudson, or, and the Lincolns were doing well then too, and the, and the Pontiacs. So then Detroit said, well, maybe we've got something here and we didn't know about it. So they started putting money into it just the way Ferrari invests in Grand Prix racing in Europe. And since then, it has just exploded into a tremendous sport, huge crowds and everything. Well, meanwhile, driving these cars, which go 180 miles an hour on average, usually better than Indianapolis cars, they're fantastically powerful automobiles, um, driving these things were a sort of breed of Appalachian Southerner, who in a way is a, a, a vestigial race, it's a much more of a clan, a real clan atmosphere in the mountains down there. And because of this, they have a code of physical courage that I don't think exists anywhere else in the country. And I think it can be traced to the fact that they've been isolated in the mountains in part because, not just the terrain, but because of the whiskey business. Uh, it's, there have been fights over moonshine whiskey ever since two years after the founding of the Republic. And they go on today, and, and so they, the reason that many of those uh, hill country people are so inhospitable to outsiders is that they're making moonshine liquor up there, and they're doing it to this day. 
And so they, they keep people out with, with, with guns. Well, the, what this has done is to preserve a clan life in, the, in these hollows and in these hills. And this old idea, the clan idea of courage that you see in, in, in tribes in Afghanistan, let's say, where you or in Turkey, in a lot of many parts of Turkey, um, this this kind of emphasis on courage is maintained, and, and these boys were already driving the cars. They drove them for their fathers, just like Junior Johnson did. So they were not afraid to drive with the lights off at 90 miles an hour down a country highway. So they were used to this thing. So they were the ones who began driving the stock cars. So we get this curious phenomenon. Here's Detroit doing this very avant-garde motivational research thing of selling you and me automobiles by financing stock car racing. So, you know, we go to the stock car racing and we see these cars going down the straightaway at 180 miles an hour and it looks just like the car we're driving. It looks just like a Ford or a Chevrolet. It's the same body. Uh, and so we go out and buy one. Well, this is something very sophisticated, part of the modern advertising scheme of things. But behind the wheel, are people who come out of the most ancient uh, and outmoded uh, clan. And in the reverse, and then there's a crazy reverse involved here, the very fact that his primitive figure, the primitive figure is used by the sophisticated uh, tastemakers as far as by, at the same time, he's worshipped because of his primitiveness, of his courage by his followers, whereas in reality, he's a very solid and successful businessman. Yet the other side yeah, well, this has happened to Junior yeah, yeah. Johnson to a certain extent. Yeah. I mean, here's a man who, in a f pretty good year, stands to make $100,000, to gross $100,000. And so he has to cut it out, really. He has to cut out the wild life that, that he led uh, but and hold on somehow to the... Hold on to the, the, the courage, yeah. uh, really, which is which is a hard thing to do. And Junior scared scared me this year. He announced one rainy day down in Atlanta he was going to quit. He said he didn't feel he could do what he always was used to doing. But then I think the sun came out and he's won ten of twenty three starts this year. So I guess he's back on the track. I think what Tom Wolf uh, you you probably gathered just from our uh, discussion, just a cursory uh, looking through the book is that obviously aspects of our society untouched by the totem newspaper. Suppose you describe because then we have to talk about the tycoon of teen, Phil yeah. Spector and his experience, and well, then I, finally I, the, the view of New York, but the totem newspaper. I've got a big thing against totem yeah. newspapers because I've worked on them. Um, and fortunately right now I'm on the only, I think, the only experimental paper in the country, and I'll that's defend that. Herald that's the New York Herald Tribune. Um, that's, why that's why I work for them now. But anyway, I think it's it's been true all over the country that people have been buying papers as as totems. In other words, they're buying a paper that will support their value system. They want to wake up in the morning and be able to read something that bolsters uh, whatever they want to believe, rather than something that's going to tell them something uh, new. And I call it a totem newspaper in this respect because it's just like these buffalo ears that the Omaha Indians used to like to carry around. This was a, the original kind of totem, part of an animal. They would take one of these, they'd cut off the buffalo's ears and tie it to their belts. And just the presence of the ear on, the, on their belt symbolized their whole s tribal system of values. And they felt very secure, like a security blanket or something. 
and they would get if anyone tried to touch it on the outside to try to touch the thing they'd become very angry because this was a symbolic attack on, on, on their values well I think today many people buy a newspaper the same way the New York Times is the t top example of this um, it has a pretty big circulation now people buy it uh, there and all over the country just to have to hold just to have it with them because having it with them usually says uh, I am a very bright successful person or if I'm not obviously I'm close to being that or I understand people who are or I have, I'm, I'm part of all of this it's different from just having it for as a status object in other words when you buy that I think when people buy the Times a lot of other papers too like that they they're not buying it so somebody will say see he reads the uh, New York Times he must be a very bright fellow it's just a habit it's just to <laughs> hold it touch it and you don't have to Linus read it. You and don't his even blanket. The Linus and his blanket. Now, what this has done is it given us papers, newspapers, that are repeating ideas that are always at least 30 years old. The 30 years comes from the age, the year the editor, editors in charge left college. That was the last time they had any ideas, you see. Mm -hmm. And so they, they sort of... That's one kind of uh, totem paper. That one, that's, yeah. the, uh, that's the status totem. There's another kind of totem paper you describe. The guy at the bar drinks. Ah, yeah. well, this would be the Exhurst paper. The paper right, that, uh, right. This is the paper that... Uh, sort of the cap of a one-eye view of life. Sort of the, everything is looked at sort of the way a cab driver with his cap over one eye would see it. The stereotyped cab driver. Yeah. The stereotype, yeah. yes. And that is that a kind of bargain basement cynicism about uh, the fight game or about politics, uh, about the uh, about kickbacks at City Hall, which I don't, may, may not exist. Yes, and uh, at the but at the same time, there's this tr tr overpowering sentimentality uh, underneath it all. I call it the mom's pie. No, uh, and of life. It seems to me a very important revelation of yours to me here in your introduction about two these two kinds of totem newspapers is both band together when it comes to this new development you're describing in the subculture, if you will. And they looked out, they said something of yeah. the kooks was the kid on the motorcycle or the custom car. Right. Part of their whatever. function is to yeah. look is to look at uh, these things such as uh, the motorcycle gang. Because they're not fashionable. You know, right. they say they, they generally do come, they, they are strange looking, they generally do, are poor, and therefore you're, you're saying here the gentle fun they poke at them means these people really are nothing. Right. It's a, just a way of assuring you yeah. that the new things you see happening are no threat to your secure way of life. And that's why you will see the, it's not only the newspapers, things like magazines like The New Yorker, when they, when they treat something like the discotheques uh, or the rock and roll music generally, and often new thinkers, such as Marshall McLuhan, the Canadian, when they treat these things, they will use a tone of, of light mockery in the talk of the town or something. And the idea is to is just a form of assurance, is to say, don't worry, we, you're not challenged, it's no threat to you. Uh, and it's a little rankling, if only because it's... It's a form of misinformation. Yeah. Not, uh, the fact is that there is a tremendous Im impact being made that's being ignored. Of course, there's also the other side of this too, which you use. You have Baby Jane Holzer here. Uh, oh, the, people were people yeah, were outraged. The society, yeah. The people were disgusted that uh, 
when we ran this story in our magazine. But you, I suppose you could tell us a little about Baby Jane Holster. We want to hear about also Phil Spector, too. These are, mm. are the aspects of our society we know nothing about, unfortunately. Well, I, and maybe we can yeah. and, uh, really couple them together because oh, the yeah. reaction to both of them was the same. Jane Holzer is a colorful young lady in New York who, well, we kept noticing at the, our magazine, the Herald Tribune magazine, we kept noticing in the fashion press, things like Women's Wear Daily, this name, Baby Jane Holzer, was popping up. She seemed to be the girl who was actually wearing the new hairdos that the magazines tell us are current. The new clothes, the no matter how extreme, she was doing the dances that were, were coming in. See, the fashion industry always has to find some few real-life figures to, so they can say, well, see, somebody actually is wearing those dresses or those hairdos and so forth. Well, she seemed to be it that year, and then we sort of noticed that there had been someone like that practically every year that the fashion press would seize upon to exploit this way. So we created the title, The Girl of the Year, and Baby Jane Holzer was it. And she was a girl who really was the, f the first figure to really take on all of these pariah styles, as I later came to call them. Uh, she was involved in the underground movies, the, the whole boho life, and, or the, the camp life, if to use that term. Um, camp world, rather, she's, anyway. The clothes, the, the dances, everything. And to many people, she was a too bizarre to be to look at closely. I mean, they, they couldn't stand this. And we ran an article, treated her seriously, as well as pointing out in full the whole life that she was involved in. And there were cries of disgust because people did not want to see this in a newspaper. A newspaper was not fulfilling its totem function mm, if it showed you something new. Well, I think Jane Holzer is important because what the way her, her mode of life over the last couple of years is going to be, the I think, the prevailing mode of life in not only society but everywhere that there is money. Uh, people are going to be taking on these pariah styles. It's, going to, it's, going to, it's to happening right now. It's happening in every city. Well, the same thing happened when we wrote about Phil Spector. Phil Spector is a 23-year-old uh, promoter of records of eight smash hits in a row and is worth millions in right, the world of right. rock and roll. <laughs> well, Phil uh, was, a, at the, when the, time we wrote this, the time I wrote this piece, um, he was an unknown figure. He was an unknown figure except in the music business. He was 23 years old. He was a, I call him a teenage millionaire because he had made his, he made his first million when he was 21, but he had, was building up to it as a businessman before then. And suddenly I found a very colorful figure on my hands. Phil Spector's a guy who wears his, last time I saw him, his hair was down to his shoulder blades practically. Uh, he wears very bizarre sort of sometimes 18th century dueling shirts. Uh, all kinds of boots, British, cowboy, other kinds. And yet he's a very talented kid and very savvy and has made a lot of money. He's a successful American businessman, but he doesn't, but he acts like a, a rock and roll idol. You know, now one of the totem disc jockeys, we use this phrase, it's interesting, you have a, a totem program, the David Susskind program, see, with one of the totem disc jockeys who plays ballads, the regular show tunes, and a saw at, at Phil Spector. 
for for apparently damaging the taste of the young and destroying America's morality. And Spectre Media asks him what he what he's doing that's so great. Does he play Scarlatti? Does yeah. he play Bach? No, he's got Sinatra. See, no <laughs> Cheryl, see. And so I, naturally, it's, it's a marvelous piece because it exposes the other one really as this totem kid peddling a product that's inferior, really. So we've become we've suddenly become very nostalgic about Frank Sinatra yeah. because we now think of Frank Sinatra in the same. Uh, breath with uh, the with Scarlatti with uh, um, with he's supposed to be now a great figure in music out of because he's out of the ballad era. Well, actually, if you listen to those ballads from the 30s and 40s, uh, they're a little bit sickening okay. because they're all about people who are dying from love. They're swooning from love. They're they're fainting. They're falling. They're lying on the ground. And but these are the totem songs. That's these, the point. See, right. These are the totem songs, and what is happening, obviously, is a rebellion. And I'm thinking, perhaps to end this, I'd love to read this about this page and a half. This is Phil Spector, and uh, you are imagining, he's told you this, of course. You're looking, he's this kid who's made it, and he's got his pals with him on this plane about to take off, but somehow the idea is raining, and he's... Well, he feels funny about the plane, is that it? And, right. And he has, and so he has to be taken off. And, and in the beginning, Tom Wolfe has it uh, through the mind of Phil Spector, imagining what's going to happen. It's going to crack. And, and Miss, a stewardess is walking back uh, to the back to buckle herself in for the takeoff. The plane is moving. The jets are revving. Under a life boy blue skirt, her fireproof legs are clicking out her uh, pinky keeny panty fantasy. Miss, says Phil Spector. Yes. I, I like I have to get off the plane. She stops there beside his seat with her legs bent slightly at a 25-degree angle to her ischium. Uh, the use of words, too, by the way, is something I'd like to talk to Tom Wolfe about someday. She laughs with her mouth. Yes, yes, but there is no no in her eyes. You little bearded creep, you're not very funny. Her face congeals. She looks at a suede jerk, and she says, Sir, uh, you know, I have to get off, says Phil Spector. I don't want to fly on this plane. Let me, but she will never figure out about the raindrops. She's standing there hoping this is a joke. Uh, I'm not putting you on. I'm not putting you down. I'm not anything. All I want is, you know, just o open a door and let me off. I'll walk back. The rest, everybody, I mean, go ahead, fly. Sir, we're already in a pattern. There are seven aircraft, seven jet aircraft behind us waiting for the runway. By this time, Phil Spector's Hollywood friends in this nutball music business, there is one of them beside him and a couple of them behind him. They're craning around. Phil, what's wrong, baby? Phil turns around and says in a soft, slightly broken voice, Man, this plane's not going to make it. They all look around. They all look like frozen custard in the seat legs. You know, Phil says, it's not making it. They all look around. This goddamn noise is roaring off the wings, and Phil sits there in that kind of doldrum fury he lives in, his beard, his hair, his suede. Okay, we're in a pattern, seven jets, but this guy, Phil Spector, has just produced eight straight hit records, you know? Eight hits. Well, th th this kid is practically a baby, 23 years old, for Christ's sake. He's made $2 million clear. The first teenage business magnet, living teen tycoon. Like he's programmed into the whole life bit, you know? He does A&R for Daddy God. He's lucky, you know? And if he's getting off, so the big chap behind with the moon head and the little 7th Avenue toy black hat says, Yeah, we want to get off. There's something wiggy or something about this plane. Yeah, yeah. 
The stewardess is looking around him. Here is her life being drowned by this little guy. He has a Fu Manchu beard sticking out in front of his hair, his wispy locks a comb back, coming down and back over his shoulders in a kind of page boy, like Bishop McCullough's, the heir to Daddy Grace. He has on a suede leather shirt, jerkin' style, somebody's cone of light lies, Miami saffron pools on his Italian pants. He looks like, what kind of... All this commotion. Yeah, say Phil Spector's pals. It's Wiggy, off this flying Cretan. And Phil Spector broods over the raindrops. The stewardess runs for the cabin. So they stop the plane. They break up the whole pattern. They knock out everybody's schedule. They turn the plane around, take everybody off. They check Phil Spector's luggage for bombs. Look at this beatnik's hair and back there. And they stare at Son of Bop and a leather jerkin. Ten men in a, a Lumicron suits bombarding him with corporate hate rays, but his pals keep up the strange, upbeat talk. Phil, baby, you saved my life. Phil, if you say it's Wiggy, it's Wiggy. You've done it again, Phil, babes. You've done it again. You say it's Wiggy, Phil. I say it's Wiggy. It hurts too, D'Artagnan, baby, right here, same as you. Wiggy, baby. So, says Phil Spector, they grounded me. They took away my credit cards. They spent the pilot. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and so it seems that in this writing which is literature, at the same time, wild truth. Studs, if I'm ever asked to read from my own works, I want to get you to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Wolfe, then. I hope this is the first of a number of visits. Uh, the Farrar strauss Giraud book, these essays, observations, works of Tom Wolfe, uh, I think a tremendous insights into our world today. The candy-colored, tangerine-flake, streamlined baby. Thank you, sir. Studs, it's been terrific. Well, thank you. <laughs>